Hey, welcome to night school. Welcome. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I'm going through a second round of Discogs. I think I mentioned a few months ago how I had listed things on Discogs for the first time and kind of an incredible experience. You know, I had bought a few things on there over the years, going back many years, maybe five or six things I'd bought on there, but I'd never sold anything on there. I didn't even know how it worked. And it's so easy. You know, you just click a button, put a price in, and then it notifies everybody who has it on their want list. And it's definitely, uh, you get a buzz off of it. You know, you get a buzz off of it because you'll put something up and it's incredible sometimes that someone will just grab it right away. All of a sudden, money is in your account, in your hands. Although speaking of that, you know, it's so crazy how money today is just uh, just these numbers going back and forth. When you think about our relationship with money, I think about the days when I was growing up and someone's dad would have this fat wallet, just this obscenely big wallet. And I don't carry a wallet. You know, I just have a little sleeve for my credit cards. And uh, there's also enough, there's a little zipper pocket where you can put cash. Wallets were never for me. I was never comfortable having a wallet in my back pocket, in my front pocket. It always seemed very unnecessary. But you think about kids' dads growing up where they always had this, like I think about my dad and he just had this huge wallet. And money was this very physical thing. Like, yeah, you wrote checks, but you counted out your money and you paid it. You handed it over to somebody. It was this very physical experience. And how now it's just this, it's invisible a lot of the time. Like, yeah, when you're paying with your debit card at the grocery store, you're keeping, you're aware of the fact that, oh yeah, this is, they're deducting money. I need to have enough money to pay for this. This is going to make a dent, you know, in my bank account. But still, it's this invisible process that's happening. Like these numbers show up on the till. They deduct those numbers from your card. And then, you know, if you do online banking and all that, how you're just passing numbers around. You're just throwing numbers around. You know, I know some people work jobs or they get tips and things like that. So they still have a more physical relationship to money. But we've gone so far from that. And it's interesting doing online commerce. Commerce. Because it's just these numbers come to you. You transfer those numbers to your bank account. But with Discogs, you know, I did a first round. And that first round of selling on there, it was very much, what do I really not want? What music do I have? What tapes do I have that I I just truly don't want? And what do I only marginally care about that isn't a jewel to me, but somebody else might consider it a jewel. And so it's worth selling. You know, that was basically my approach was like, what do I truly not want? And what do I not really care about? But people will pay for it. So I might as well sell it. The other night, I decided to do round two. And it's interesting doing round two and like taking a look at what is left and being like, you know, there's a reason why this wasn't part of round one. There's a reason why this was a maybe before, because I have some jewels. Like, for example, there's a tape that when I did round one, I set aside. I was like, I'm going to re-listen to this or I'm just going to I'm going to set this off to the side because this is a rare jewel. It is a rare jewel. And then when I looked at it the other day, you know, I still haven't listened to it. Even though I set it aside a few months ago to consider it, I looked at it the other day, a couple tonight, actually. And I was like, you know what? 
I actually own this on CD. I own a reissue of this on CD. I have a, I have a dubbed version of this too, because before I owned a copy, someone dubbed me a copy. I'm not in love with it. I got it for a good price way back when. It's a rare tape, but I got it for a good price way back in the day. And you know what? I've probably listened to it once. I probably listened to it once when I first got it and appreciated it for what it was and I was happy to have it. But the only reason that I'm holding on to this is because it's in the jewel category. And I realized that about a bunch of things I own, where I'm like, the only reason I have this is not because I get any true enjoyment out of it. It's because in my head, there's some scenario where a certain person comes to visit me at my house, which never happens to begin with. But it's like a friend who lives in another state comes to my house and goes through my collection. We're sitting there going through my collection, which is unlikely to even happen. Like if somebody came to my house, I just want to talk and hang out. I wouldn't even want to be like, check out my collection. Like, it's cool when you go over to someone's house and they do that with you. Like, it's cool to see what people have. I have some friends who have incredibly impressive record collections, tape collections, and things like that. And it's always cool to see what they have. I like jewels. I mean, I was over at a friend's house a couple years ago, and he had this record. It's one of my favorite records, and I have a couple versions of it. I have it on vinyl. I have some CD bootleg version of it. So I've got a couple versions of it myself. I think I actually have three versions of it. Maybe. Yeah, I think I have three versions of it. You know, I have uh, the old bootleg, which was the only one you could find. I have a reissue on CD, and I have a vinyl reissue of it. And I don't normally do that, but this is one of my all-time favorite albums. But I was over at his house, and he pulled out the original vinyl pressing of it. And it was limited. I think it was limited to 500 or something. And it was going for... you know, it's probably worth thousands of dollars, easily thousands of dollars, you know, at least a thousand. I would, I think it's probably worth $5,000. You might be able to get $5,000 for it. And he pulled it out and was playing it for us and he's kept it in great condition. And I was really impressed. I was like, this is amazing. I've never seen the original pressing because back when you first got into this band, you couldn't find their stuff anywhere. And you'd go to eBay and you'd see that people were paying huge amounts of money, even 15, 20 years ago for this record. And so to actually see it in person was impressive. So, I mean, that kind of experience is cool. And when you go over to someone's house and they bust something like that out, but at the same time, I didn't want to touch it. Like I was looking at the cover in my hands and this other friend who was there was like, you know, that record's worth more than your life. And when that's the case, you don't want to touch it. You don't want to hold it. Like the record, the the one side of the record ended and I was over by the record player and I was like, oh shit, I have to flip that record and put the needle on it. I don't want to do that. I don't want to touch that thing. So when something's an important enough jewel, you end up in that situation where you have to go around... And you can barely do anything with it. It's like you can't even enjoy the jewel. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh shit, this is somebody else's very expensive jewel. But it's a, it's fun when that happens. It's fun when somebody has something like that. But there was this tape I had, you know, and, and I was kind of on the fence about it. Because I was like, I have reissues of this. I have a reissue of this. I have a dub of it if I really want to hear it on tape. And I looked on Discogs, and a copy has not been sold since 2008, which is crazy. The fact that it's been 14 years since somebody sold this, I don't know what it was limited to. 
but it was on an old label. It was released in the nineties. It was a limited run. And I just, I saw that and I was like, wow, 2008. And so I listed it, you know, and I hate to talk about money. I hate to be gross. I don't, I don't feel like I'm saying it for gross reasons, but still like, I was like, you know what? I'm going to put this up for $150. If it sells, it sells. If it doesn't sell, I can lower it, but I'm going to put it up for $150. Maybe I could have gotten more, you know, the greed was starting to kick in where I was like, you know what? It's been 14 years since this has been sold on Discogs. Maybe I could sell it for 200 But I thought, you know, I, I also want to actually sell it. And I know that if I get 150 freaking dollars for this thing, I'm going to be very happy about that. I put it up instantly. Instant. It sold instantly. I couldn't believe it. Instantly, you know, this thing was bought. And it was a guy I know. I don't know him personally. He lives in another country. But he's a guy that he's bought stuff from me before. He's a great guy. I've communicated with him. It truly is going to a good home. And, you know, that's a cliche. Oh, I'm glad it's going to a good home. I'm glad this is going to a good home. I feel that. When you're getting rid of a jewel, it feels good when you know that it's going to somebody who you like, who's a good guy. You don't want to sell something to somebody you hate. Maybe you do. Maybe, maybe sometimes you do, <laughs> but no, that, that, you know, it's going to a good home thing does kick in. And the guy said, I've been looking for this for so long. And I'm like, that actually does feel really good. A part of me feels guilty that I'm charging so much, but this guy didn't give it a second thought. He saw it pop up the first time in 14 years. He's been waiting for it. It's a win-win because it helps me. It helps him. And the reality is I'm never going to think about that thing. It's been sitting in a drawer for who knows how many years. That thing has been sitting in a drawer for how many years. And I think about that and it's like, why was I holding on to it? Again, maybe it's that feeling of like, oh, somebody's going to come here and I want to make sure that I have a jewel I can show them. I want to make sure that I have something I can show them that they're afraid to touch. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like that. And, you know, I have other stuff I can freaking show people. And it's funny how much we're motivated by that. I don't feel like that's a particularly bold admission. I bet if you were to ask a lot of your friends who collect things, part of the motivation is they like the idea of showing it off, show and tell. Not that that's and it's and I say that because it's not a shallow thing. You know, when Batty runs up to me and shows me his toy. You know, it's common with dogs where they want to show you their toy. They run up to you. Like if Batty meets a new person, he might very well grab one of his favorite toys and run up and hand it to them. He wants to play, but he also is saying, hey, look at my toy. Isn't my toy cool? And even though I live with Batty, I see his toys every day. I play with his toys with him every day. When he brings one of his toys to me, I get excited. Just, just the fact that he's bringing it to me. I'm like, thank you. Thank you for bringing that to me. Especially when he goes up, because sometimes, you know, he knows where his toys are. At any given time, he somehow knows what room, what corner some of his toys are. And sometimes he'll run into the other room, he'll go upstairs, and he doesn't normally leave me. You know, he doesn't normally leave my side. He's always in a place where he can see me. Even if he's sleeping, he's sleeping in the same room I'm in. And sometimes he'll disappear, which is rare. And it's sort of alarming because it's like, where is he? Is he, is he sick? 
but then he'll come bounding in from the other room with one of his favorite toys and it's 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 amazing it's exciting and he's excited so i don't think that's a shallow emotion i don't think that's a shallow motivation to be like i want to have things to show people it's part of what makes us human is we like to have cool jewels to show other people cool jewels and so me thinking that i don't think that's a shallow thought and if I think that way, I bet a lot of people think that way, that they like to have cool things to show people. And that's what happens. Like if you go over to somebody's house, even if you don't have an, a shared interest, like you go over to a, your friend's grandma's house, which I do all the time. I'm always going, I'm always going over to my friend's grandma's houses. But if you go over to your friend's grandma's house, she might bring you over and be like, here are my ceramic tea animals. Here's my mother's china. I inherited this china. It belonged to my grandmother. You know, they like to show those things off. And for some people, it's records. For, th- some, for some things, it's art. It could be anything. So it's not just some shallow materialism. It's like these things have meaning to us. But I think about me, and it's like I don't need to be motivated by that. Especially when it comes to this thing sitting around. Like, that tape is going to make that guy happy to get it. Even though I felt bad, I'm like, man, this is a good guy who I know, and I'm charging him that much money for a freaking tape. But it's like he's willing to spend that money for it. He's willing to spend $150 for an extremely rare tape. So everybody wins. And hopefully he feels like he's getting it from a good home too. It's going to a good home. Hopefully he feels like it's coming from a good home. Maybe I overthink this, but it's been a weird experience, you know, thinking about, you know, just materialism in general, because I like material objects. I'm not somebody who ha- who looks at material objects with disdain. I don't equate materialism with, uh, like, I, like, I don't find value in something because it's expensive. Like, I think there is that sort of phony, superficial materialism where somebody shows something off to you because it's expensive. Oh, hey, check out my new car. I spent this much on it. You know, that doesn't impress me. It doesn't impress a lot of people. But it's still important to them. It still has value to them. And we all do it one way or another. But just realizing I have so many things like that. And I'm just sort of hoarding these jewels that I could benefit from by getting rid of them. And it's not like I think they suck. Because sometimes you sell stuff you don't like anymore or that you think sucks. And you don't want to let anybody else know that. Like, if you're getting rid of something that you don't like, you don't want to tell the person who's buying it that. I mean, I had a guy a few months ago bought a record from me on eBay, spent a good chunk of money. You know, he spent uh, over $100, I think, $150 on it. And it's a record that I got when I was a junior in high school, just for the price that any record is. Some stoner rock doom band, a very big one, actually, one of the more seminal stoner rock doom bands but i sold this record and the guy bought a lot of money for it and then he was messaging me about that band and this band's cool they're one of the best bands to ever do that but i didn't need it anymore there's that rainy day is not going to exist where i go looking for that record and it's also something it's never going to get banned on youtube it's always somebody's always going to have a rip of it on youtube somebody's always going to have it on spotify there are a million reissues if I really wanted a copy in 20 years, because, you know, that's the good litmus test for this, is do you think about it later? I don't, know if the, I don't know if it's a litmus test, but that's just the good test for this. 
are you missing it later? That's true for if you're doing a house cleaning. You know, when I lived in the same house for seven and a half years and didn't get rid of anything, I just accumulated things, I stuffed things in closets, it became this cluttered mess. Not quite hoarding level, but, you know, I have hoarding in my family, so I can see where that, I know how easy it is to do that. I don't think I'd ever consider myself a hoarder, but I have a a close family member who is a hoarder. Not a dirty, filthy hoarder, but they just keep stuff. It's clean stuff. It's not piles of garbage. It's not like those kitchens where it's just piles of filth and garbage and dead animals. It's old newspapers. The way it was explained to me, like the way this relative was explained to me by, by another family member was this person will read a newspaper And they'll see an article they want to read later, and they'll say, oh, there's an article in there I want to read, so I'm going to set this off to the side for later. But they never read that article, and then they do that with another newspaper. And next thing you know, they have a big stack of newspapers from 30 years ago. And I can relate to that. There are a lot of things like that. I mean, even just that tape I sold, it was very much, I set it aside a few months ago, and I said, oh, that's a jewel because I have this jewel, I need to justify owning it. So I should listen to it. And it's probably cool. But you know what, I have it on CD. What the heck? And I don't even own a ton of stuff. You know, I don't even mean to give the impression that I'm somebody who owns things on multiple formats, you know, some things, if I'm particularly fond of something, I might do that. But, you know, I set this aside to listen to it. And I never even did. It's been sitting in the same exact spot I put it in above my stereo for three months. And I've listened to other things since then. You know, and that's always a good way of figuring this stuff out is one, even when I tell myself I'm going to do something with it, do I actually do that thing? Do I actually ever reach for that? Do I ever have that night where I'm like, that's exactly what I want to hear? Oh, that's it. That's exactly what I want to do tonight. Do I ever have that moment? And does it feel like that moment's ever even going to come again? And then second, am I going to miss this when I get rid of it? Well, you're not truly going to know until later. But, you know, just to go back to what I was saying, like when I, when I accumulated all this clutter at my last house, about a year before I moved out, when I wasn't sure if I was going to be leaving anytime soon, I was like spring cleaning. It's the only time in my life I've done a, a real in-depth spring cleaning. And I did what people do, which is like, oh, here's the pile of stuff I'm definitely getting rid of. Here's the pile of stuff I might get rid of. And I ended up getting rid of a lot of it. And you know what? I wouldn't even be able to tell you a single thing. I wouldn't even be able to tell you a single thing I got rid of. Even though that stuff had been sitting in my house for years and it seemed like it was an essential part of my being. Like, like there was a little period of time where I would go to the Half Price Books outlet where you can get things for a dollar or two dollars. And I would buy old comic strip books. If there are books that had old, weird newspaper comic strips, kind of eccentric old artists, I would buy those and I would be like, oh, I'm going to go through this later. And next thing I knew, I had on my coffee table a stack of like 10 of them and I got rid of them all. You know, I got rid of every single one and I wouldn't even be able to tell you who they were. I don't even know who the artists were. I never even went through them and read them. You know, there's a lot of things like that where you're just like, oh, I never actually did the thing I was planning to do with those. And it it never seemed like it was going to happen. And now I don't even remember what it was. 
And doing some eBaying, doing some Discogs over the last few months, way more in-depth than I've ever done it, just constantly trying to put things up and sell them. I'll think about something I have, and I'm like, oh, this has some kind of sentimental value. Oh, I'm selling this toy I found. I remember playing with this toy when I was a kid. But you know what? As soon as I package it up and ship it off, I don't even think about it. I don't even think about that toy. And so that's something to consider in all this. If you're the, if you're the sort of person who has trouble getting rid of things, actually taking a look at what that thing is and being like, is that day going to come where I want this? And if you can't even visualize that, you know, that's a good sign that you should get rid of it. And then second is just after you get rid of it, if that day never comes where you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have gotten rid of that. Cause it does happen. When I was in high school, I remember selling two or three CDs I had gotten. They were metal bands and the, the CDs had gone out of print and I needed weed money. I needed some weed money. And I sold them on eBay for a lot more than I bought them for. I bought them for normal price, and by that time, they were out of print. And so I sold them for a lot of money because I thought it was just a phase. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I had those CDs. People want them. I don't think that I was really truly into those bands. But guess what? Like two years later, suddenly I was like, why the fuck did I get rid of those? Those are the exact albums I want to listen to. And I had to track down reissues. I had to track down different versions of them. So that happens, you know, do I regret it? No, I wanted, I know why, I know why I sold them. I wanted weed money. Maybe I got more enjoyment out of the weed, the two bags of weed that I bought than I got out of those albums at the time. But sometimes that does happen where you're like, man, I I really wish that I uh, wouldn't have gotten rid of that. Now I have to buy it again. So that does happen, but it, it seems like it gets more and more rare. And I'm also not a collector. You know, I'm just not a collector. But speaking of that, you know, the last episode I did was probably fairly morose. Still feeling that way. Not going to go into it. But you definitely go through these periods where it feels like everything's conspiring against you. It feels like you're hitting a wall in every possible way. And your negativity bias just enhances that. Your negativity bias intensifies that. It's like on a day where you hit red lights on your entire commute. You're very well aware of the fact that you're hitting red light after red light. It's just this It's this stop and go day. When you pull into a parking lot, somebody's going the wrong way. When you're walking through the grocery store, somebody just cuts in front of you. It's just You have days like that, weeks like that. Sometimes it goes on for months. Where it's just, it seems like everything that somebody could possibly do obstructs you. Even traffic lights. You're going for a walk and every single intersection you get to, you have to wait. You get there right when the uh, light changes. So you have to wait through the entire cycle to cross. You know, there's, there's periods of your life like that. And your communication with people feels like that. That's how mine feels. My communication with people feels that way lately. A good example is, you know, as anybody who listens to this know, I'm, I'm obsessed with the mafia, the history of the mafia. I run a sub stack now where I write articles. 
and do an occasional show. Actually, it allows me to record episodes. So I'll just kind of riff about the mafia. It's something I've been very passionate about for close to 20 years. And I've finally reached a point where I feel like I can write and talk about it. Very nerdy. It's a very nerdy take on it. But I've made friends through this fellow researchers, historians, and I'm really honored that they see me as some kind of peer that they want to talk to me. And you agree about things, you disagree, you collaborate. But it's interesting. Lately, you know, it's very much a when it rains, it pours thing where when I'm into that stuff, I'm completely obsessed. It's basically what I do with my free time. I'm just researching, making connections, putting things together, talking to people. And that's what's been going on lately is it's a good distraction from everything that's bringing me down lately is just to immerse myself in this other world, this history the secret society. And something came out that changes some assumptions we have about the early mafia, or it might change our assumptions. And I, I won't go in depth about it here. But just to explain the basics, it's well accepted by mafia historians now, like serious real mafia historians, that the original US mafia families were based around where guys came from in Sicily. Like we kind of knew this, but enough evidence has accumulated to where this crime family has its roots in this town in Sicily or this combination of towns or this little area. And they transplanted those. They basically transplanted themselves to the United States. But their relationships and who they associate with is a direct reflection of the town they came from. And it seems like the entire U.S. mafia was formed along those lines. There's cross-pollination there are exceptions, but there's significant evidence that that's how things were formed. And these two friends of mine uh, wrote an, a really incredible article in a publication called Informer Journal that covers the history of the mafia. And it's a, it was a groundbreaking article. I call it the New Testament of New York Mafia Research. Just a really incredible piece. And one of the themes in it is what I just said, that there's evidence now that the different New York crime families, you know, there's five, there's evidence that their origins actually trace to very specific hometowns and kinship relationships. And these hometowns were strongholds of the Sicilian mafia. So these guys were members in Sicily or their relatives were members in Sicily. It's all connected. It's a network. It was an international network. But these two friends of mine in their article, they also mentioned that a guy had been mentioned by the Secret Service in the 1890s as being the supreme head of the mafia in the U.S., and they believe he might have been the head of a New York family, maybe the first New York family. They didn't know where he came from, so they mentioned him. You know, their article wasn't based around him, but they mentioned him, and I think they kind of took for granted that he probably came from one of these familiar hometowns that spawned the U.S. mafia. Well, just the other day, something was found that he was from a different part of Sicily where the mafia didn't exist. He was from the far eastern coast where there's no evidence there were ever mafia families there historically. There's no evidence that men from that part of the island had any significant influence on the early mafia, let alone could have been a boss or the quote unquote supreme head. It's more likely that this guy was a, a well-connected criminal probably a mafia member. But the Secret Service really had no idea what the mafia was until, I mean, they didn't really, the federal law enforcement didn't really know what the mafia was until the 1960s. 
it took them forever to actually understand what the organization was. So a lot of the earlier understandings of the mafia are completely off base. If a guy seemed well-connected, if a guy, say, had a very important role in a counterfeiting operation, which this guy did, the Secret Service might just say, oh, he's the supreme head of the mafia. Maybe they had more reason to believe that. But since it's come out that this guy was from Messina, which is, there's, there's no evidence that that played a significant role in the Sicilian mafia. There's no evidence that it played a significant role in the early U.S. mafia or any of its networks. So it really goes against our assumptions. It goes against the evidence of, that we have on how the U.S. mafia formed. So in discussion with these friends, I mentioned, well, this changes things. I said, this changes things. Either it means he was not a mafia boss and the Secret Service got it wrong, or it means the foundations of these organizations are way different. The politics, the influence that where you came from played, I mean, it changes something. And one of these guys, he's an older guy, and he's a friend of mine. I have nothing but respect for him. He's He's been really cool to me. Like, I wasn't doing any research or talking to anybody for three months. And he messaged me. He sent me a text message. He's like, hey, man, like, I haven't heard from you in a while. Just making sure everything's okay and you're doing well. Like, I really like this guy. He's he's a friend of mine. I think he's in his 60s. But he's very, he, he, his thinking is very linear. You know, as usual, I, I preface it by being a great guy. Here's why. Here's, here's where I talk shit. Um, no, I'm not even talking shit, but I've just noticed he's very methodical. And that's what, you know, everybody has different skills. Like this guy will go through information. He will take it at face value. He will go through it methodically. But he won't really, uh, he won't think outside the box. And he'll just kind of take things as they are. And he does great work that way. But the guy who's kind of his collaborator and partner is a little bit younger. And he has some of those skills too, but he's very imaginative. And some of the more groundbreaking stuff they've come up with has been a combination of their skills, where the one guy will think, hey, what if this is how things were? And then the other guy will find evidence to support that. And they'll collaborate. You know, we all have different skill sets, and we bring them together. And that's how great things happen. That's the dance. That's why conservatives and liberals both need to exist. But they need to accept that they're doing a dance. And when one of them pushes back or one of them pushes forward, that's necessary. And you should want both people to do that. You should want someone who's, who thinks that way. And you should want somebody who thinks like you. You know what I mean? It, it, you need to have that dance going on. You need somebody to be the anchor. And you also need somebody to be the one who's pointing off in the distance going like, I think we can get there. I think we can make it there. And that's countered by the person who's like, yeah, but I think we need to stop here and really consider this. It's why businesses often benefit from having the person who is uh, the uh, kind of the creative mind who generates the ideas. You know, the person who's the innovator, and then that person is balanced out by the person who thinks about the structure of the business. Well, how are we actually going to run things? How are we going to manage this business? They think about the practical decisions. It's interesting to see that dynamic play out. And so these two friends of mine, they, uh, they're very much that dynamic where the one guy is a more conservative thinker. It turns out he's also much more conservative politically, which is interesting. But he's the much more conservative thinker. And he's like, well, no, we need to stick to just the bare facts. 
and who are we to interpret those facts or think outside of them? While the other guy is more like, well, hey, yeah, these are the facts, but don't you see how they connect? And I'm more that way. I try to be reasonable, but I'm, I'm more that way. I'm probably even more willing to speculate than either of those guys are. But I said I said I was going to keep this short, but it's just it's very interesting just on a psychological level because they published something about this guy eight years ago. They published that he might have been the first New York Mafia boss, and for that matter, the boss of bosses over the entire American Mafia. But since it's come out that he's not from a Mafia hometown, he's not even Western Sicilian, which is where the Mafia comes from, and there's little evidence that there was any presence of the Mafia in Eastern Sicily, the fact that this guy could become that powerful gives you pause. It means either the Secret Service didn't understand the formal organization and inflated this guy's importance because he was, let's say, a very important counterfeiter. Or it changes our entire understanding of the politics of the early mafia. It's one or the other. And it's funny because the guy who's more conservative thinking, he just outright dismissed me. Kind of rudely, to be honest. When we brought when this came up, like I, I was like, hey, doesn't this change things? Doesn't this change your interpretation? Like, doesn't this kind of change the point you made about this guy? And he's like, no, it changes nothing. And I didn't bring it up in a way that would force him to be defensive. I just, I posed it honestly. I was like, doesn't this change something? The fact that this guy, like one of the entire points of your article, which is like the New Testament to me, but one of the entire points of your article was that hometown and kinship were central to the formation of the U.S. Mafia, the New York Mafia. This guy does not fit that pattern. And not only does he not that not only does he not fit that pattern, but every single other person who came after him does. And every single person who seems to exist contempor- contemporaneously contemporaneously to him does fit that pattern. So every single other person who we know was a mafia boss, who we know was a boss of bosses, fits this pattern. And those patterns are directly mirrored in Sicily. These guys come from mafia strongholds. They're part of these blood and marital clans. They're in close contact with the mafia strongholds in Sicily after they come here. The politics that happen inside of the mafia are directly informed by relationships formed in Sicily. The network is formed along those lines. How could this guy be so different? Either it means he was not that, And the Secret Service, who didn't know how the Mafia worked back then, were wrong. Or or the Mafia formed very differently than we thought it did. But the guy was just, no. And I think it's investment. You know, he invested in a certain idea, even just a little bit. He invested in the idea that this guy was really important. They didn't know that he wasn't from a Mafia hometown. They didn't know that he didn't have these connections. And I think this guy invested in that idea that this guy was what they thought he was. So now when there's some evidence that, hey, maybe we need to rethink this. Not that we need to challenge anything. Not that we can actually prove it. Because you can't really prove much. You have to just go with the sources you have. But not that we can prove much. But 
he was so dismissive and rude to me about it. And I tried to, I tried to bring it up as tactfully as possible. But he was so dismissive and rude about it. I was just like, man, and I didn't give in to that. But I was just like, I know part of this is that this guy is a very linear thinker. And he published this article eight years ago. And I think here's what happens with speculation. First, you speculate. You might find some reason to back up that speculation. But the next time you think about the thing that you were speculating about, you start to believe it a little more. And I do this. I'm guilty of this. So if you speculate about something, especially research-based, the first time you think about it, you say, well, hey, could this have been this? Could, could it have worked this way? And then you look for evidence and you say, well, these factors, these could contribute to that theory. And then you don't think about it for a minute. The next time you revisit that, you're like, you're a little, you feel a little stronger about it. You're like, well, this is how things were back then. I mean, it happens with lies, too. Not that speculation is dishonest, but it happens with lies, too, where when someone tells a lie, the next time they revisit that lie, it's now a memory. That lie becomes a memory, and you're remembering the fact that you lied, but eventually it just becomes a memory. I had a friend growing up who lied a lot. He was a good guy, but he lied a lot. And it was always harmless. It was always about something... It was always like a, like a good story about something. And he'd be telling, you'd overhear him telling somebody about something that you were there for. And you'd be like, oh, he's lying. And you wouldn't even call him out because it was unimportant. And he would know he was lying the first time he did it. But then over time, you'd realize, oh, no, he actually, he forgot that he lied about that. I mean, I, I mentioned doing this myself on an episode. I talked about how it was a weird night about six months ago, last year sometime, where I was watching these live streams of somebody playing an online Friday the 13th game. It was some kind of online multiplayer game where you, you play camp kids, you play camp, whatever you call them, kids at camp, trying to escape from Jason. Jason's going around this camp at night. It's a very creepy game. When he gets nearby, it does the however that goes. Uh, so it's a very eerie game. It's very quiet, and Jason's just stalking you, and you have to escape him. But I ended up watching this thing for hours. It was crazy. I don't watch people play video games, but I was watching people play this Friday the 13th video game. And just through cultural osmosis, I'm so familiar with Friday the 13th and Jason. And I remembered while I was watching this, I was like, oh, I've never seen it. I've never seen a single Friday the 13th movie. But you know what? I had convinced myself that I had because one time I lied about it. And it wasn't like I had some great story as a kid. I was probably in like fifth grade. And a kid said, oh, have you seen Jason Goes to Hell? And I said, yeah. Because I wanted him to, because the thing is, you do that sometimes. If, if somebody's telling you, going to tell you a story, like in school, this used to happen where if somebody comes up to you and they're like, oh, have you seen Friday the 13th? If you say no, they're going to be like, oh. And they don't tell you the story. They don't, they close off. They go like, oh, well, never mind. And even though you're telling the truth, you want to hear the story. You want to engage. And so someone comes up to you as a kid in school when you're in fifth grade and they go, oh, have you seen Jason Goes to Hell? And you say, yeah, because that means they're going to engage with you. 
It's not like you are trying to be cool, maybe sometimes. But then the other side of that is is sometimes it is to be cool. Like sometimes someone will be like, hey, have you seen Friday the 13th? And you go, no. And they go, you haven't? Oh, you have? Oh, my God, you haven't? You know, sometimes people do that to you and it sucks. So you'll lie and just say, yeah. It's not like you lied in the sense that you were like, oh, hey, guys, last night I was watching Friday the 13th and blah, blah, blah. And then my mom came in and she said, you shouldn't be watching this. And I said, get out of here, mom. Like, uh, you know, J- I don't know. I don't know how that story goes. <laughs> but it's not like you tell a big, bold lie like that. Like, it's not like it involved you doing something. It's just as simple as somebody asking you if you've seen the movie and you say, yeah. And I did that. And then you know what? I forgot that I hadn't. Like over the years, occasionally movies will come up and you suddenly realize, you know what? I've never actually seen that. And it's especially tricky if it's something like Jason, Friday the 13th, where you know so much about it through cultural osmosis. Like I've worn a freaking Jason mask. I've like put one of those hockey masks on and been like, I'm Jason. Hey, I'm Jason. You know, I've done that. <laughs> you know, like, like I, I've been around, I've seen Jason everywhere for years. I'm sitting down watching a live stream of, uh, live stream of some multiplayer game of Friday the 13th. It's funny. But in that moment, I was like, oh, one time I, I told a passive lie about seeing a movie and I forgot that I hadn't actually seen it. Well, you do that with yourself. Like when you tell a lie to somebody, you have to reconcile that. And so as a result, you eventually come to believe that lie. That lie kind of takes on the properties of a memory. And that's come up. Like that friend who I grew up with who used to lie, he doesn't lie anymore. He stopped lying. He outgrew it. Sometimes people outgrow lying. I think sometimes they either become worse. They become more manipulative, more dishonest. But he eventually grew out of lying. I think he just kind of had fun with it. And then he realized it's not a good thing to do. But every once in a blue moon, he'll reference something. And I realized that, oh, he, he forgot that he lied about that. And it's turned into a memory. And he believes it happened now. And I don't say anything. I just go, oh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. But it's interesting to see that happen. And that's the scary thing about being a human is you might be doing that and you don't even know. Like, I know somebody who manufactured a childhood that didn't exist. And I think they've convinced themselves that it happened that way. And I know otherwise. You know, everybody has their own perspective. But, uh, you know, I've mentioned this before. I've hinted about this before, where it's just seeing somebody do this, where you know for a fact they've manufactured a childhood. That their childhood was like this. And now they've come to actually believe that because you can't go on living without reconciling that. Like either you have to admit to yourself that you lied. And sometimes that involves admitting that to other people. Like if you're, if you've gone around telling people that your childhood was worse than it was, that your parents were worse than they were, not that parents are perfect, not that you have to go around acting like your parents were saints, but if you've, as kind of part of your victim narrative, if you've manufactured this idea that your parents were worse than they were, that your life has been harder than it's been, and you've told other people that, well, that's, that's worse than just telling it to yourself. 
Because now it's like you have even more incentive to keep it up. You have more incentive to believe it. So there's something in us that does that. And I I bring this up not because the guy that I know is a liar. He's far from a liar. But because he invested a certain amount into a certain idea, even though it's a very minor part of his research, I can tell that he invested something into that. And now the information has come out doesn't prove him wrong, but just challenges it. It just, it, it chips away at that foundation that he may have thought was there. That's why he responded to me by being like, it doesn't change anything. Nothing is different. You're reading. He told me I was reading into it too much. And I'm like, well, fuck you. Cause that's your gut response, but you can't take it personally. And it's this weird sort of bird's eye view thing. Where when you realize why somebody is being defensive, why they are being rudely dismissive, it's because like they feel attacked. They feel that they feel attacked or they, they feel that something they invested in is being taken away from them. And you have to be careful about doing that yourself. You have to be careful when everything feels that way. Because I don't know, this guy, he just had a really bad case of coronavirus too. I had to think about this. I talked to him on the phone about a week ago, and he sounded terrible. He's an older man. He had a bad case of coronavirus, and he's probably still recovering. And trust me, I wasn't a dick. I really, truly was not a dick. I just said, hey, doesn't, I was like, do you think this changes how to interpret this information? That was how I presented it. And he was like, no, no. Uh, But he just got over a bad case of coronavirus. He probably feels like shit. You know, there's reasons why people are in a weird place, especially right now. So many people are. So many people are cold and iced out. They feel other people are treating them that way. You know, I was talking in the last episode about feeling kind of iced out by people, family and friends. Like, I just feel kind of like they're icing me out. They'd probably think about me and be like, he never contacts me. He never says anything nice to me. And it's easy to feel that way. Like sometimes if you go through periods where you're like, nobody's messaging me. Nobody's inviting me to do anything. Well, how often are you messaging people? How often are you inviting people to do things? And if you go through one of those phases where everybody feels like they're, uh, where everything feels difficult. Like I go through phases where like I do make the effort where I'll be like, oh, I am going to reach out to that person. I am going to invite that person to do thing, to do things. And then you do that and they say, oh, no, I'm busy. Or they don't get back to you. You're discouraged from doing that again. You know, so sometimes you just hit a wall. But it's easy to forget that you're doing the same thing you're accusing other people of doing. And it's also easy to get resentful and paranoid. You know, on those times where you're like hitting a red light at every stoplight, you start to feel like there's a conspiracy against you. And then especially if you're having other negative interactions, like I've had a few things going on, like I'm still doing the e-being, what we call e-being. And I've been selling things continuously on eBay for three months. I'm just steadily listing things, steadily shipping things, selling them. I haven't had a single person not pay me. I had like one person message me and they at least messaged me and they were like, oh, I didn't actually want this because blah, blah, blah. 
And I said, you know what? It's not worth it to get into a dispute. They don't want it. They inconvenienced me. I'm not going to get hung up on this. I'm just going to do that. But other than that, I haven't had anybody straight up not pay and not say anything. In the last week, I've had two people back to back do that. Just in the last week, two people straight up didn't pay. When I messaged them, they didn't respond. And then there's a third guy who now it's going on four days and that's nobody's waited that long. Because, I mean, we're at a point in time where it's like, yeah, people get busy. People, maybe they're waiting for their paycheck or this or that. But, you know, if you don't pay within the first day or two, something's up. And what always gets me about that, just while I'm complaining, is it always gets me like when somebody, they won something because they were the last one to bid on it right before it ended. Like they fought somebody else for it and they put in the last bid. And so they're sitting at their computer when it ends. Why don't you immediately pay? I've noticed some people do this on Discogs too, where when, when you click to order something on Discogs, it goes into it, like, like it becomes an order, but you then have to make an extra step to pay for it. And when you make an order and just do the first step, it takes it off the market. So it's in your possession, essentially. It's like, uh, that person put their name on it and then they have to pay for it to actually get it shipped to them. I've noticed there's a certain type of person and they, they just add it to their, they, they make an order and then you have to bug them days later and be like, Hey, I still, I still, I try to do it tactfully, but you go like, Hey, I have this set aside for you. And I've even had people do that and then offer me a low ball offer. Like I had a guy put something, he he made an order, which is sort of a contract. It's saying like, I'm interested in this enough to pay for it at the current price. And then they'll say, well, Hey, how about if I pay half? How about if I give you this? And I said, no, you ordered it. If you wanted to offer me a, if you wanted to try to, to barter or bargain for it, you should have just sent me a message and left it on the, the market. So I don't like that about people. And I've noticed the sort of person who does that, they kind of have a lazy way of communicating. Like they'll write you back and it'll be this very, it'll be like all lowercase. They write you back and it's all lowercase And it's this sort of like lazy, the way they write to you is even lazy. It's just funny to see that, like where there is, I have nothing against people who write lowercase. Some of my favorite people just type in lowercase. But I've noticed that the sort of people who do that, when they do message you, it's always in all lowercase. Like they put the minimal amount of effort in. And we all know that showing effort is a sign of weakness. Oh my God, if you you capitalize your letters you care. This is how much I don't care. But anyway, it's just funny to notice those patterns. And uh, yeah, but yeah, in the last week, it's like going three months and selling a lot of things on eBay and not having a single person who just flat out doesn't respond, doesn't pay. And to have two, you know, I don't want to jinx it. Unfortunately, these are fairly low money items. But even that, even beyond that, like the people who have been paying lately have been taking their sweet time. And you can get conspiratorial about that. Like you start to feel like the universe is conspiring against you. Like the fact that three people at the same time decided not to pay me. And that's never happened before. It's happened to me years ago. It's been, you know, three straight months and suddenly like the memo went out. Hey, don't pay Eric. 
Hey, don't pay Eric. There's a secret forum on eBay where these people are and they say, hey, if you buy anything from Eric today, don't pay him. We're trying to make him lose his mind. We're trying to make him lose his mind. And this is going to be the, this is going to do it. I mean, I had something where a guy bought something from me on eBay last week and he paid, but he, he went back and forth a lot, which is weird because it was like he wanted to talk and he asked me what my screen name meant. He said, what does your name mean, by the way? And my eBay account has existed since 2001. I created my eBay account when I was like 14 years old. And uh, he was like, what does your name mean? And I'm like, man, I have to think back. And there's nothing offensive about it. It's kind of weird. The idea I think I had, I'm not going to name my eBay name, but I think the idea I had was like the idea of a diver like diving down to the bottom of the water for rusty nails. And so the idea is like someone diving down into the water to pick up nails. I was trying to be weird. You know, when I was a teenager, I liked the idea of coming up with something original and weird. Even my eBay name had to be a jewel. My eBay name, it's got to be a jewel. It's got to be unique. And so I came up with something in reference to that. I don't even know where I got the idea. I'd never seen somebody do that. I think I had this idea of like, you know, I was always afraid when I would go swimming that there was like rusty nails or nails at the bottom of the water. And so I imagined a diver going down there and retrieving them. And so my name is based on that. It's a weird idea. And I had to explain that to this guy who was buying something from me because he asked me and he's like, I'm always curious about people's eBay names. And I'm like, TMI, man, this, that's, this is TMI you're asking for. And, uh, what was weird about it, though, is then when after he paid me, he was like, oh, can you ship it in a box just to make sure that it's protected? And I was like, sure. And then he, he closed that out with Jesus loves you. And based on his screen name, here we are analyzing each other's screen names, but based on his screen name and the sort of way that he was communicating with me, it seemed like he might be joking. Like his, his name, uh, his eBay name had the word sucks in it. And maybe he made it when he was 14, but his eBay name had the word sucks in it. And, uh, so I just got the vibe, like maybe he's joking, but nothing about our communication was funny. It was just about the thing he wanted to buy. And then he asked me what my screen name meant. And then he, he told me, can you ship it in a box? Jesus loves you. And I was like, I don't know if he's joking. I don't know if he's fucking crazy. <laughs> and it rattled me. Cause I was like, do I respond? Like, do I say anything in response to that? You know, because I mentioned the story on here with my friend here in town. She sold a, her ex-boyfriend sent her this weird, like, decorative glass rose. Not a crack pipe, but like this, this rose made of glass. This really tacky thing, and he'd been bothering her. She didn't want it. And so she immediately sold it on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. And this old Mexican guy bought it. And when he bought it from her, they met up and he was like, before I give you the money, can you just say that you believe in God, which that's off putting. But he was like, he explained himself and he was like, the reason why I want you to say that is because I feel like this is cursed. And what's funny about that is he was right. Like her ex-boyfriend sent her that and she didn't want it. And so she decided to sell it immediately. And the first day she listed it, the guy want, some guy actually wanted to buy this decorative rose for his wife. 
but he, he told her, like, I want you to say you believe in God because I feel like this is cursed. Basically, he wanted this thing to, get, to be blessed. He was obviously a hardcore Christian. So even though it's off-putting and weird and, you know, it could make you think the person's out of their mind, he at least explained himself that he believes in curses. Maybe he believes in, like, Santeria. Who knows? And uh, so she, I don't know what she said. I think she gave him some kind of explanation. Well, I believe in God, but not the Christian God, that kind of thing. Uh, but this guy wasn't anything like that. He just said, Jesus loves you out of nowhere. And I'm just like, I don't even know what to say. And I was having a rough night and, and I, I focused on it for a little too long. I was just like, that's weird, man. This makes me feel weird. But he paid. But he paid. If he didn't pay and he said Jesus loves you, I'd feel a little more weird about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, with people not paying, it's very easy to be like, man, some sort of memo went out. Make sure that Eric hits every stoplight on his way home. Make sure that Eric has to deal with a bunch of people who don't pay. And eBay's changed about that. You know, I know this show's become like eBay reflections, reflecting on eBay. But I do find it interesting. You know, I do find like all these things we use very interesting, the things you observe about people. Because I noticed you can't, it's very difficult to live, uh, very difficult to live. It's very difficult to leave negative feedback. It used to be that you could just leave someone negative feedback without anything. Like you, you could just do it for the heck of it. Like I have this memory of a guy not paying me for something in high school. I sold a CD on eBay and the guy didn't pay. So I left him negative feedback and I said, non-paying scum. A bit much. A bit much for me to do that. The guy was buying a metal CD. So I felt a little more comfortable like this guy. I could call him scum because he's a metalhead. Because he's a, a dishonorable metalhead, I felt like I could call him scum. But he retaliated and left me negative feedback and called me scum. And I was upset because I'm like, now I have negative feedback on my profile. And I know that eBay changed things eventually. They were, there, was, there was so much retaliatory feedback. Like someone would leave somebody negative feedback and there was nothing stopping them from doing that to the person in return, which isn't fair. Like they didn't pay me. I shouldn't have called him scum. I was wrong about that. But he didn't pay me. So I, I have the right to leave him negative feedback. But I noticed now that like if somebody doesn't pay, you have to like... You have to like make a case, go through this process. And then if you cancel the order, you can't leave them feedback at all. So it's good in the sense that it's harder for people to give you negative feedback, but it's harder to give them negative feedback too. But I made this decision, like when I was doing some eBaying a few years ago, I was like, I don't want to leave anybody negative feedback, even when they deserve it. Because here's the thing, even if they've done something to, to deserve negative feedback, it feels shitty to do it. If you sit there and you write this non, even if it's totally deserved and it's how the system is supposed to work to let people know that this person is difficult, it's just one of those things you don't want to do. You know, it just feels shitty to do it. It's like telling somebody off even when they deserve it. You feel shitty afterward. And so I, I kind of made this decision, my eBay philosophy, where I was like, you know, even if somebody doesn't pay, I don't want to leave them negative feedback just funny. It just seems like they will eventually get their due. They will eventually have a day where somebody doesn't pay them. It's karmic. Me leaving them negative feedback makes no difference in the world. Karma. Karma. 
will eventually catch up with them. But and, and two, the thing is about your negativity bias is like even though I felt that way lately, like everything seems to be an uphill battle without resolution. Three people haven't paid me this week. A lot of other things just aren't going smoothly. But then a bunch of things have. Like your negativity, it, it's a good example of that is like with traffic lights again, where it's like on days where you hit every green light, you don't even think about it. Like if you hit every green light on the way home, you don't even think about the fact that it was just a smooth shot. If you're feeling especially good and you're aware of the fact that you're feeling good, you might notice it and you'll be like, yeah, green, green lights all the way home. You know, you might feel that way for a second, but it doesn't stay with you. Like in the moment, you'll be like, hey, that was great. Nothing but green lights. It was a big hallway of green lights, and I was just sailing through. You might think that for a second while it's happening, but you don't go home and be like, man, things are going well. Green lights? Hey, remember the other day? Hey, remember last Tuesday when it was green lights all day? And people have paid me. On eBay, some people have paid. And I was at the grocery store today, and I I was paying with my card, just throwing numbers just playing that numbers game of paying for things. And uh, I had my wallet out or whatever that thing is, whatever that thing is that I keep my cards in. It's not a wallet. And the lady behind me kind of nudged me and pointed down like, oh, hey, look, you dropped something. And there was a $5 bill down there and it was not mine. It was a $5 bill down by my feet. It it looked to her like I had probably uh, dropped it because here I I have my stuff out and she happened to look down and see a $5 bill and was like, oh, you dropped it. And I was like, oh, thank you. And I picked it up and it's, you know, if it was a $100 bill, I might be like, somebody dropped this, they might come back for it, but nobody's going to come looking for a $5 bill. And so it's like, that's that's a freaking $5 bill. I mean, you're happy if you find a quarter to have a $5 bill just manifest by your feet. That's nice. That's a green light. It's a, it's a green dollar bill. So things like that happen. You know, I found $5. That's a nice discovery. And I didn't feel guilty or obligated to turn it in because it's a $5 bill. $5 bills are nice because you don't feel like somebody, yeah, maybe there's someone out there who $5 is the difference between living and dying, eating and not eating. But for the most part, it's like if somebody drops a $5 bill, it sucks, but it's yours. And, uh, you know, just selling that tape today, like the fact that I threw up a, I, I puked, no, I, I put up a tape for $150 just being like, maybe this is crazy. And somebody right away was like, not only am I going to pay you for that, I've been looking for this forever. So it's like, you can't let your negativity bias cloud those things. The guy, my research friend, who's like, rudely dismissive of me just wanting to talk about an idea. And it's, it, this guy likes to talk. He likes to discuss these things, but he's obviously, he's recovering from coronavirus. He was invested in a certain idea and something came out that sort of challenges that. And I pointed that out. You know, I don't know. I mean, you understand where people are coming from and sometimes you're that person. So we got a positive message here. You know, don't let things get too cloudy. Don't let the negativity bias weigh too heavy. It's very easy to have a bunch of smooth interactions. I mean, even on a day where you hit mostly green lights. I mean, sometimes that's the worst time to hit a red light. 
If you've been hitting green lights all day and then there's one red light, that can be the thing that brings you down. Just one little thing that kind of slows your momentum is enough to be like, oh, it's been red lights all day. Oh my God, it's been red lights all day. And you completely forget that it was mostly green lights. So I'm trying to keep that in mind. I'm trying to do that. That's all I got. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave, this golden land. To me, and when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free.